there's nothing illegal about making a donation to WikiLeaks. And so a lot of Americans did do that right after Cablegate, and they went to the WikiLeaks website, and they clicked on Donate, and what were their options? It was Visa, MasterCard, PayPal. And when they clicked on those, it said, sorry, we will not process your payments. It's because those companies came under political pressure. Bitcoin does away with that. Hi, I'm Raihan Salam, and this is The Vice Podcast Show. I'm joined today by Jerry Brito, a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, who blogs regularly at Tech Liberation Front. Jerry, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, Bitcoin. We've been hearing a lot about it, but what exactly is it? Well, Bitcoin is the world's first completely decentralized digital currency. And, you know, we've had digital currencies for a long time, right, for decades. If you think about Microsoft points or Facebook credits, these are digital currencies. And we've had payment systems that allow us to exchange money online for a long time. So PayPal, Visa, MasterCard, we've had these things. So what is it about Bitcoin that makes it unique? It's the decentralized part of, of when, we, when I say the world's first decentralized. Oh, yeah. When you say that, uh, you know, points, you mm-hmm. know, uh, Facebook points, uh, you know, frequent flyer miles, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, so these are a way for me to acquire some good or service mm-hmm. through this thing, but, but it's not money. It's not something well, that I can sort of exchange for just anything. It's something that I know, can exchange for a, a particular basket of goods. You're right, uh, because when you buy Microsoft points, you can then only really use them in the Microsoft store. I think there are ways that you could transmit them to another user. But yeah, you're right, sort of limited in, in, in scope. But the, the basic idea is that um, we have had uh, currencies that are not the U.S. currency or not a state currency. Right? We've had private currencies for a long time. So that's not new about Bitcoin. Mm. What's new is that with Facebook, with Microsoft, with Berkshires and Berkeley, um, these are all issued by a central issuer. There's a company that makes up these tokens and hands them out uh, or exchanges them for fiat dollars. With Bitcoin, there is no Bitcoin company. There is no uh, Bitcoin building. There's even, not even a Bitcoin server anywhere that you could shut down. It is completely distributed. Um, that's what's unique about Bitcoin. It is for the first time, a way for the two of us to exchange value online without a third-party intermediary. Until the invention of Bitcoin, for you and me to exchange money online, we had to employ a third party, like PayPal, like Visa, like MasterCard, right? Um, and the reason for that was very simple. If, uh, if I wanted to send you money online, what would that look like? Well, money would have to be some kind of digital file, right? Um, so let's say I want to send you $100. That $100 would basically be some kind of $100 file that I would attach to a message and send to you. Now, it's the same as if I sent you a photo or a Word document. When I send you a photo or a Word document, does it get deleted from my computer? No, nope, it, doesn't. it doesn't. So then I still have the exact replica of that file, and I could then spend it a second time, a third time, a fourth time. And that's what computer scientists called the uh, double spending problem. So it wasn't until the invention of Bitcoin. You could spend the same amount of money multiple times, and there's no way to be sure that you're to not be doing sure. that. Right. When you got some money, there's no way that you, you, know, that you knew this was uh, legit. Bitcoin solved that problem for the first time. That's, that's the genius of Bitcoin. Um, the, way the, the way that we solved it before Bitcoin is that we employed a third party, somebody like PayPal. And what they did was that they kept a ledger. Essentially, PayPal is a big ledger. You have an account, I have an account. When I send you $100, they deduct it from my account. They add it to yours. And at the end of the day all of uh, PayPal's accounts across all of its customers have to reconcile to zero. Bitcoin essentially does the same thing, but without PayPal. And the way it does that is there's still a ledger 
where everything reconciles, but that ledger is distributed peer-to-peer amongst all of the users. That's a genius of Bitcoin. So let's talk a little bit more about currency as we conventionally understand Mm it. Um, Now, when you think about a U.S. dollar, Mm -hmm. it is a scrap of paper. There's some linen in there, Mm -hmm. basically. Uh, But for whatever reason, you know, people, when you hand them over a $100 bill, they will hand you over an exchange, Mm -hmm. goods and services. Uh, Now, let's understand a little bit, I mean, why is that, period? (laughs) It's a good question. And the nature of money is something that has driven a lot of people crazy, uh, trying to understand why it works the way it does. But at at the bottom, it's just faith. It's just a faith that we all have um, that if I accept a $100 bill when I, you know, a week from now, I should be able to exchange this for goods at, that, you know, at my grocer. And we all have faith in this, in this piece of paper. And that faith is ultimately undergirded by the authority uh, of a, a, a kind of central institution. Uh, a, a, Not is, really, is right? Because Bitcoin's a good counterexample of mm-hmm. that. There's no central institution Well, to but that's Bitcoin. why I just want to yeah. focus a little bit about yeah. money as we know it. So when you're thinking, when you talk about faith, you know, what is it that we have faith in? We have the faith, so, you know, the, the dollar is backed by the full faith and credit of mm-hmm. the U.S. government. Right. Uh, and so we know that actually, you know, uh, one is obligated Right. to honor the value of well, this currency. Not really, right? So, um, so the dollar has uh, uh, an advantage that private currencies don't, right? So government currencies have an advantage, and, and they're the following. Number one, um, you can only pay your taxes in dollars. So we all owe taxes, and that can only be paid in dollars. So you have to have dollars. So in a way, the market share of a dollar is, is protected by yes. this protectionist measure, which is to say that the government will only accept dollars. Absolutely. So I need to acquire dollars somehow in order to fulfill my obligations. Correct. And the second thing is uh, all contracts can be settled with dollars. So if you and I um, uh, you know, sort of have a contract, say I sell you my car, um, but even if we denominate that contract in euros, right? if you default and we go to court and I say, okay, I'll pay you, here are dollars, you have to take dollars in settlement of a contract. So those two things are sort of the backstop. Um, but short of that, it is just the faith uh, that we have. Well, and certainly uh, when we think about these government-backed currencies, there has been a long history of currencies before government-backed currencies. Sure. And you know, in the past, uh, one would, for example, you know, use precious uh, metals, you would use gold. Uh, mm-hmm. That was a kind of very popular one and still is yeah. to some degree. And um, so you know, I'm giving you gold and I have faith that you will treat this as value, or when I accept it, I have faith this will retain its value and I will be able to use this in the future. So it's similarly a kind of faith-based currency. Yes, that's right. And I think that that's where the the analogy for Bitcoin starts to to break down. Because when you say that Bitcoin is not based on faith in the same way as a traditional government-backed currency or, you know, uh, you know, precious metal. That's kind of an interesting idea, and I kind of want to really... Well, no, I, th- I think Bitcoin is based on interesting, faith. but it's right? based in a different kind of... No, it's the uh-huh. same faith. It's, uh-huh. it's, a, it's the same faith because, um, uh, you, you know, the reason you have, you know, use Bitcoin is because you think that next week you'll be able to um, uh, spend that Bitcoin for goods and services. Mm. Now, Bitcoin, Bitcoin is very volatile. Look, currency um, has three things that make currency currency, um, or make money money. One is you can use it as a store of value. One is that you can use it as a unit of account. And the other is that you can use it as a medium exchange. Hmm. I think Bitcoin is an excellent medium of exchange for the reasons that I explained a minute ago. It allows us now to transact online without third parties. Lots of benefits to that that we can get into. But as a unit of account and as a store of value, I think Bitcoin still has to prove itself, right? So as a unit of account, it's so volatile 
Um, yeah. Well, we should okay. we'll slow down a bit okay. to uh, get into that. But so when so when you're thinking about those three purposes, when you're thinking about a traditional currency, yeah. um, you know, it, it has uh, a lot of attractive features. Partly because uh, if you think about the U.S. dollar, you know, its value relative to other currencies certainly fluctuates over mm-hmm. time. Its real value in terms of the goods that one can purchase with it also fluctuates over time, but it tends to do so very slowly. Very slowly. And so it's become kind of a standard thing for people to use yeah. kind of when they're concerned about uh, the erosion of the value of their mm-hmm. assets. Uh, so beyond the uh, kind of monopoly virtues that it has in the right. sense that you, know, you can use it to pay taxes, et cetera, um, you know, it has these other values of stability as well. Now, one reason why Bitcoin has attracted so much attention is precisely because, uh, you know, whereas one of these discrete units, mm-hmm. a, a uh, lowercase b Bitcoin, right. uh, used to be you know worth virtually nothing. Now Pennies. it's worth quite a lot, yeah. and it keeps. Tell me a little bit about the volatility. Right. So uh, just just to say quickly yeah. though that um, that's part of the reason why the U.S. dollar, what you just described, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that it fluctuates in value very slowly. Um, that's the reason why you would say the U.S. dollar is a good store of value and a good unit of account. You and I probably wouldn't have a problem setting up a contract to sell you a car in dollars because probably. A dollar is going to be worth a dollar in a week's time, right? Whereas a Bitcoin, we don't know. It's very volatile. Same thing with, with, with the store of value. A dollar is going to be worth a dollar in a week's time. Not, not the case probably with, with the Bitcoin. So why is it so volatile? I think it's just a, um, a, there's nothing inherent in Bitcoin um, that makes it volatile, although there is no central bank uh, that can ease the volatility. Uh, the real reason that Bitcoin is, is volatile is that it's thinly traded. It's a very illiquid market. Um, their, the Bitcoin market today is about $10 billion uh, is the market cap of Bitcoin. So in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's um, kind of small. And a lot of uh, the Bitcoins that are out there are just being held uh, uh, for speculative purposes. And so as a result, any um, one trade that's sufficiently big enough sends uh, the Bitcoin prices you know, really roiling. Um, and so with news, either positive or negative, you see a lot of people coming in and out of the market, and you really see these fluctuations. As more people, uh, more merchants, uh, more institutions begin to use Bitcoin, and demand for Bitcoin goes up, and it's more heavily traded, and also eventually might even get the ability to short uh, Bitcoins and get other derivatives, you should see, hopefully, the price of Bitcoin um, ease out. So you think that... Uh it's simply a matter of time as more people enter the market. One argument uh, that's been raised is that, in fact, you'll never see that because the mm-hmm. kind of people who culturally gravitate towards Bitcoin are paranoid about inflation. Uh, or another argument that I've heard, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but another argument yeah. that I've heard is that, well, as they grow more valuable, people uh, you know, won't want to part with them. And mm-hmm. so th- but you know, it, it seems it's to me inflationary, as though, yeah. right? And it seems to me as though that doesn't make a ton of sense, just because as a Bitcoin becomes more and more valuable, mm-hmm. presumably the opportunity cost of hoarding Bitcoin also right. becomes very also, high. Right. That's right. But I, I think that um, again, it's Bitcoin's value as a medium of exchange that really is the, the important uh, thing mm-hmm. here. So um, yes, people right now, especially early adopters have all sorts of different reasons for being early adopters. A lot of them are ideological reasons, right? So people will uh, uh, be into Bitcoin because they're gold bugs and they're afraid of inflation. Uh, Very recently, uh, Ron Paul, the former Republican presidential candidate, uh, talked about how we'll no longer need the U.S. dollar because of Bitcoin, uh, which, you know, seemed uh, like a a pretty big endorsement, although not necessarily kind of a... You know, a very accurate characterization yeah. of how this is like. What's, what's funny is that he actually um, 
I was very skeptical of Bitcoin a few months earlier. I saw an interview with him, and he said, uh, you can't put them in your pocket, so I don't think it's real money, something to, to that extent. Um, so yeah, so it was interesting to see that, that, that about face. Um, but look, Bitcoin is a medium of exchange, and other properties around Bitcoin that make it really interesting make it valuable. Um, uh, and that's why more people are going to come into the market, why more merchants are going to begin to accept it. Quite honestly, because you, you can think of Bitcoin as a alternative to traditional or to existing payment, electronic payment methods like Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, Western Union, that is cheaper and faster in some times. So basically, though you have some people, some Bitcoin enthusiasts who see it mm -hmm. as a way to replace uh, existing yeah. government-backed currencies, another way to think about it is that, well, no, this is a layer that could, you know, kind of atop existing traditional currencies or whatever else uh, that happens to be useful for other purposes. And we use, you know, uh, when you look at, um, you know, uh, payment services, mm -hmm. this is a sector with only a, a small handful of business enterprises. And because there are network effects in that business, mm -hmm. I mean, they tend to be very, very entrenched. So when you're thinking about Visa, MasterCard, right. you know, PayPal as well, although it's operating in a different layer as well. Right. So I guess, you know, you, could, you don't just have to think about Bitcoin as an alternative to the dollar. You can think right. of it as an alternative to Visa, MasterCard, it, and uh, PayPal. Is and that look, there's, there's no reason why Bitcoin couldn't be an alternative to a national currency. People think it someday could be a global currency, and perhaps... But to me, that is um, really far off into the future. I, I, I don't see it really displacing the dollar or the euro anytime soon. It might displace um, the, Euro, the Argentinian currency. It might displace some African currencies a lot sooner. Um, but to me, since that's so far away, that's not as interesting as what you were saying, the challenge that it poses, the disruption that it poses to well, existing but payment what, so, systems. No, we, so, you know, the Visa MasterCard duopoly has been around for a very mm -hmm. long time. Uh, you know, PayPal has, at this point, been around for a reasonably long time. Yeah. These um, services work tolerably well. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're reliable. Uh, they're relatively good at combating fraud and much else. So why would I want an alternative necessarily if I'm a small business owner or if I'm a consumer? You know, what is it about Bitcoin that is so compelling relative to these you know, pretty sophisticated uh, payment services? Right. So let me answer first mm -hmm. your, your question directly. Why would a consumer or a merchant care? And then maybe we can get to why um, people who love democracy might care. So the reason that a merchant might prefer to take Bitcoin is it's cheaper and it's faster. So think of a dry cleaner, right? Small mom and pop store wants to accept um, electronic payments. So what are their options right now? Well, their options are they can go to a credit card network, some other kind of payment network. Um, number one, they need to apply for permission. They need to apply for membership in the network, and that costs money. And then let's say they get, they get accepted. They then face merchant fees that are pretty high. So if they're a small business, each swipe of a credit card when they bring up a sale, it's going to be about 25 cents just for the swipe. And in addition to that, it's going to be about 3 to 5% of the total uh, bill that they're bringing up. That that's, can be quite a sizable amount for a small business. You often will see, especially if you go to a dry cleaner, it'll say no credit cards for anything under $15. It's because of these merchant fees. Um, let's compare that to Bitcoin. With Bitcoin, um, there's no membership. You need to apply. You just join the network. It's permissionless. Um, once you're accepting Bitcoin, there's no cost per swipe, and the merchant fees are going to be about 1% or less. Very attractive to merchants. For consumers, well, consumers, these merchant fees are passed along to consumers. Um, and so con what you see oftentimes today is merchants who accept Bitcoin saying, if you pay in Bitcoin, we will give you a 10% discount. 
you see this across uh, the web, Subway, sandwich shops, uh, for, for some reason now are accepting Bitcoins, different franchises are, and your sandwich is cheaper if you pay in Bitcoin because uh, there is no uh, merchant fee there. So this raises the possibility that uh, you know you have these entrenched payment services mm-hmm. that haven't really uh, you know kind of attracted much in the way of competition. Well, partly because they're so entrenched, mm-hmm. it's just very hard for some alternative guy to come in and and say to every merchant across the country, "Hey, use me." Right. Uh, it sounds as though this could be pressure that would lead them to lower their fees. Uh-huh. Uh, can you imagine a scenario in which you know these guys lower their fees enough that Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin becomes less attractive? Or do you think that Bitcoin has intrinsic advantages relative to kind of third-party payment services? So, no. I don't see them lowering their um, just their traditional payment systems. And I'll tell you why. It's because they're providing something for, for those fees. It's not as if they're just charging high fees for the sake of it. You get something for those fees. You get, uh, first of all, these credit card companies are in the business of lending money. Bitcoin is like cash. You either have it or you don't. It's literally cash. So there's no spending money that you don't have. Credit card companies allow you to do that. So that's one thing. And those are the consumer fees. On the merchant side... And that in itself presumably accounts for some of the difference. Yes, absolutely. And, and then the other part of it is what credit card companies and companies like PayPal offer that Bitcoin does not is insurance. If you order something, uh, uh, say from eBay and it comes in the mail, it's not you pay with, with PayPal, it comes in the mail, it's not what you ordered or something wrong with it or some sort of fraud, you can call PayPal and they will reverse the charge. Um, if you have your identity stolen, uh, somebody runs up charges on your credit card, you're not liable uh, for those. Credit card company eats those. Well, somebody's got to pay for all that. Well, that comes from the fees. So you're getting something for those fees. Bitcoin is like cash. So to me, Bitcoin is a new option for consumers. So there will be a role for these services Mm -hmm. that are providing those insurance-like features uh, to consumers and merchants alike. But it's possible that that role will be smaller Mm -hmm. because you're going to have an alternative that's going to be able to operate. And and also the the need for certain kinds of insurance will be less great when you're dealing – with a ledger mm-hmm. in which you know that party A has these resources that party B you know, is then taking in right. exchange for this right. good or service. But there are other kinds of insurance then, you know, for example, this product is substandard or, what, or right. the product doesn't arrive, that that can't handle. Right, and, and, and just uh, all the other benefits that credit card companies might offer, like airline miles or um, a concierge service. They're bundling uh, yeah. a, whole, a whole bunch of services. So Bitcoin is basically taking one piece of the bundle mm-hmm. that is a pretty big chunk of the bundle, yes. whereas the uh, payment services, partly because they're dealing with so many merchants uh, and so many consumers, they have come to accrete more and more to the bundle. And so, in a way, they're vulnerable to this kind of right. unbundling. I tell you who is much more vulnerable are the money transmitters, the pure money transmitters. So we're talking about Western Union. Um, all their, their service is simply sending money from point A to point B. In Bitcoin, a primer for policymakers, you observe that something on the order of over $400 billion in remittances flowed from uh, migrants in one part of the world to their families and friends in another part of the world, and that Western Union and other wire services like it charge something on the order of 9% yeah. uh, to transmit those funds. Yeah, I have to give a shout-out to my co-author on that, Andrea Castillo, mm-hmm. who, who did a lot of work looking at, at the uh, remittances. Um, uh, remittances from the develop, developed world to the developing world is just a huge, it's like a $7 billion It also uh, dwarfs industry. the amount of overseas development assistance. That's absolutely right. Um, recently, I helped my mother um, send money back home. She's from Spain. And it was 5%. It was amazing to me. Uh, we found a, a reputable, good, vast online money transmitter, and we sent money 
uh, back home to her brother, and it was 5% of the total amount. Now, we live in the 21st century. If we want to have a video call to China, we can do that for free. But to send a couple hundred bucks, which is essentially just ones and zeros being moved around, costs 5% plus takes over a day. What is the, so when you're talking about the payment services, there's some justification that you've just outlined for why they would want to charge these fees because they're taking on a not inconsiderable amount of risk. Whereas if I am Western Union and I'm taking uh, you know, funds from uh, a worker from Kerala who's living in Abu Dhabi and sending it back to his family home, like what is the risk that I'm taking on uh, as Western Union or some other uh, you know, wire transmitting service? I, I'm not sure what the risk is. I haven't looked into that uh, um, uh, very much, but there is a series of um, networks that interconnect. And, and each of those interconnections introduces uh, uh, different transaction costs. And I think that's where uh, the cost is. With Bitcoin, because it is one network and it is distributed, um, it's going to be uh, uh, much cheaper. So, you know, literally, I mean, there's kind of the matter of getting it from here to there mm-hmm. over the wires. I mean, that involves some friction. Mm-hmm. It presumably doesn't involve 9% of a transaction or 5% of right. a transaction well, worth of friction. And then you also have the following. Um, you're going to have, have agents in each of these countries. Um, that is where your family can go and pick it up, and that is also infrastructure. Mm. Um, and what some uh, Bitcoin startups are doing now is um, they're trying to set up, trying to work with the infrastructure that is already existing there. Oftentimes that has been built out by existing money transmitters and making them agents of their companies that are using the Bitcoin infrastructure, the Bitcoin network, to make those remittances And also, possible. as uh, smartphones and other mm-hmm. devices become more pervasive, even in the developing world, yeah. uh, it could be that that infrastructure is more of a kind of transitional thing. So actually, these wire services might have been vulnerable to some mm-hmm. kind of disruption regardless, but right. this is something that accelerates it and also has this other intrinsic advantage. In Kenya, um, M-Pesa is very popular. And recently, the company uh, that... Uh, um, Can you describe what M-Pesa is? So M-Pesa basically is a digital currency um, that is being provided by the national telecom. And uh, basically, it's, it's kind of like, like points um, that you can trade from cell phone to cell phone. Um, and somebody here in the U.S. can um, basically top up somebody's uh, number of points, and they're basically currency. Uh, they have added a Bitcoin extension. So now it's very easy to, to use Bitcoin to bridge between Bitcoin and Pesa. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you see remittances as one area where Bitcoin could have uh, tremendous potential. I think so, and I think that there are, um, like I said, several uh, startups um, that, that uh, you know, see the same thing. When you talk about the uh, cost differential, mm-hmm. uh, you know, between using one of the traditional payment services, credit cards, et cetera, uh, and Bitcoin, uh, tell us a bit about some of the uh, some of the businesses, uh, the direct consumer businesses mm-hmm. that are starting to exploit this. Um, Direct-to-consumer? So right now, it's in a very, very nascent stage. So um, it's a disparate um, sort of uh, cohort of, uh, of groups. So you'll have cupcake shops and Subway sandwich shops, but then you'll also have WordPress.com and Reddit and OkCupid, so a lot of um, uh, internet companies. Uh, recently, I saw somebody bought a Tesla from a Tesla dealership. Um, so it's a really disparate group. Of, you mentioned BitStore, which sounds like a, a fascinating... Yeah, Bitcoin store. Mm-hmm. Bitcoinstore.com is um, 
essentially uh, an electronic store. It's kind of look, kind of like a um, looks like Amazon's electronic section. So they sell DVD players, MP3 players, computers, that sort of thing. Um, and again, when they only accept Bitcoin for payment, and so their prices are are five to ten percent below Amazon's, which is crazy because Amazon's kind of like the Walmart of the internet. But again, it's because the you know the merchant fees are are so low. They they're willing to make those prices lower, you know, pass on the savings to the consumer. That seems like something that Amazon might want to be aware of yes. and, and wary of. Yes. So I wonder, um, when you're talking about this distinction between store of value and mm-hmm. medium of exchange, mm-hmm. we've talked a bit about um, the potential for Bitcoin as a medium of exchange, but just to be very, very clear mm-hmm. about this. So the volatility of Bitcoin is such that, you know, at, at some point I believe the peak price was uh, close to— Yes, it was twelve hundred. Fascinating. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, yeah, and, it's about a thousand right now. And, and tell me, what has been the kind of lowest price within the space of the last year? Uh, in the space of the last year, uh, below a hundred. So, yeah, Got it. yeah. So. Tell me about, uh, so, so clearly it's a store of value. I mean, that's something that's going to make me it, very anxious. But it's not a good store of value. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, a good no, store no, of value. As, yeah, as you yeah. point out. But, so what you're telling me is that what I might do, I might use Bitcoin kind of as this layer for right. payments. So that, you know, kind so of I'm using work? the yeah. dollar yeah. as a store of value, uh, yet only for the few seconds before right. I make transaction X. And it's also a dynamic process mm-hmm. in which the Bitcoin price is always changing mm-hmm. because the real unit of account mm-hmm. um, is actually in dollars. Right. I'm just using this as a kind of layer just as we use you know, kind of any number of third-party services. Is that a fair I think that's right. So um, again, the hope is that the volatility will subside and you'll be able to just use Bitcoin. But until then, you have uh, payment processors like BitPay. And what BitPay does is it provides merchant services. So uh, if you want to uh, buy stuff from WordPress.com or Reddit, you can you, you will essentially be using BitPay. You go to their payments page, and uh, you send Bitcoin. And what um, WordPress sees is they just see a deposit of dollars into their bank account. They never touch the uh, uh, the bitcoins. BitPay takes care of all of that, and they assume the risk and they charge a fee for that. And I'm sure that they're hedging on the other end. Recently, Fight for the Future, a um, pressure group mm-hmm. that is uh, devoted to uh, fighting internet censorship, mm-hmm. among other issues, decided that it was going to embrace mm-hmm. Bitcoin as one of its political causes. Now, this struck some people as notable because Fight for the Future is a group that is generally uh, seen as left of center, whereas when you talk about the early right. adopters for Bitcoin, it's tended to be people um, who uh, are, you know, broadly speaking, libertarians, mm-hmm. people who are very concerned about the debasement of the U.S. currency, uh, people who might otherwise be attracted to gold, mm-hmm. uh, people who come from a very different political sensibility. Uh, now, why do you think that Bitcoin is proving attractive not just to libertarians who are skeptical about government and its ability uh, to preserve the value of a currency, but to other people as well. Yeah, I think there, there are two reasons why libertarians, and indeed anybody, are interested in Bitcoin. One is the monetary aspect, which I think is very interesting, but to me not the, not the most interesting thing to me. The most interesting thing to me is Bitcoin's censorship resistance. So what does that mean? Um, as you said, there are only a handful of payment processors um, that really all transactions could go through. Um, so it's best, I think, to illustrate it with, an, with, an, with a, a story. Uh, WikiLeaks, right? When WikiLeaks um, uh, first put out its Cablegate uh, memos, the State Department memos, um, this made a lot of people upset in the U.S. government. It also thrilled a lot of uh, just citizens in the country who wanted to show solidarity with WikiLeaks by making a donation. And there's nothing illegal about making a donation to WikiLeaks. 
Um, uh, it's a nonprofit, and you're an American with your hard-earned cash. You want to give it to them. It's perfectly legal. And so a lot of Americans did do that right after Cablegate, and they went to the WikiLeaks website, and they clicked on Donate. And what were their options? It was Visa, MasterCard, PayPal. And when they clicked on those, it said, sorry, we will not process your payments. Um, why? Well, it's because those companies came under political pressure um, not to uh, tra uh, uh, transact with WikiLeaks, not to um, process payments. And indeed, PayPal even froze the accounts of uh, WikiLeaks, their existing accounts, so they couldn't even touch their money. Um, Bitcoin does away with that because there is no third party you have to use. And indeed, it's just a handful, as you say, of payment processors that the government would have to put pressure on, either by passing a law or by just putting political pressure on. Um, with Bitcoin, there is no prior restraint. Um, the government may punish you after the fact for a transaction, for an illegal transaction, but they can no longer prevent the transaction from occurring. That's a power that they no longer have. One implication of this is that, well, so thinking through mm -hmm. the, the specific example of WikiLeaks, one could imagine a scenario in which uh, you know, Congress passes a law mm -hmm. that says that, in fact, no, you cannot transfer mm -hmm. money to this organization, et cetera. Now, that's a somewhat time-consuming process, mm -hmm. but, you know, one can imagine a scenario sure. in which you do something like that. Uh, and so the censorship, uh, you know, here you have this scenario in which what appears to have happened is that, you know, we're in a panic mode. Mm -hmm. uh, this organization has is, is now sort of, a, you know, become widely recognized. Some money is going to flow towards it. Let's stop this. We don't have time to pass formal legislation. Mm -hmm. It's not even clear that we would be able to pass formal legislation right. to do this, but let's use our leverage mm -hmm. and threat mm -hmm. to get these um, centralized institutions that have all kinds of reasons to want to have a good relationship with the government to take this step. Uh, but you know, even in the scenario in which you do go through all the formal channels uh, and pass a law, mm -hmm. uh, Bitcoin allows you to do an end run around that. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that we have a condition of total anarchy because mm -hmm. you know I could still punish you after the fact for it, right. but you cannot prevent that from happening initially. Right. Is that so? That's what you're. I think it's absolutely right. And so think of, I mean, I think gambling is a good example um, uh, that would help us think through the implications. So um, online gambling is legal in the U.S. Um, uh, it's illegal for me to go online and play, you know, some poker and and and, and make a bet. Um, how is that enforced? Well, the companies, because uh, the online casinos are usually based overseas um, in uh, jurisdictions where gambling is legal, so we don't enforce law against them. Um, the uh, uh, players are usually going to be hardworking Americans who, after a hard day's work, come home, just want to have a little bit of fun. It probably wouldn't be too politically uh, palatable to raid the homes of tens of thousands of people who are just trying to have a little phone at home. So who is it that is the target of, uh, of these laws? It is a payment processor. So payment processors are told you cannot process payments for the purpose of online gambling. Um, so that's how we enforce the law. If you take that out of the equation, and indeed we, we see today that the vast majority, not, not, not perhaps not total... Um, amount in, in, uh, in dollars, but the total number of transactions in, uh, in the Bitcoin economy today are gambling. Um, and it's probably Americans. I have no way of telling, but I imagine it's probably Americans. So, if you now, so now, if the government wants to go enforce this law, wants to make good on its, its threat, it's going to have to go after individuals. And we'll see how palatable that is, and we'll see how long that law lasts if indeed there is a persecution of individuals. Now, this is, of course, one of the great anxieties mm -hmm. uh, about Bitcoin and its potential. Mm -hmm. uh, one could argue that, you know, look, whatever you think about gambling laws, uh, there is some, you know, logical 
some find it more plausible than others, but rationale right. for banning gambling. You could say that, look, we're concerned about the minority people mm-hmm. who are problem gamblers. Uh, we're worried about, uh, you know, people who, um, you know, kind of have a different kind of time preference or whatever right. else who actually might wind up squandering resources and becoming public charges. So we have some reason to want to do this. And it seems as though in this world, we could still formally ban gambling, but what you're saying is that ban no long, is no longer effective, mm-hmm. and so it's something that just exists on the books but is largely irrelevant, and that presumably also engenders, um, how do you say, a, um, a contempt for the laws that you know, can actually be enforced in practice. Um, and, and that seems potentially pretty dangerous. I mean, if you're concerned about uh, state authority right. uh, and you know, the legitimacy of state authority and the efficacy of state authority, then it seems like you know, this is something that uh, you can see why policymakers might be pretty concerned. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that what you're, what you're saying is a very valid argument. I, I'm just telling you it's a fact. And so what's going to be very interesting is to see how it is that uh, regulators and policymakers react to this new state of affairs. Um, I think to date they've been acting actually kind of intelligently. Um, uh, So uh, when the Silk Road was first um, uh, sort of discussed in the mainstream press, Silk Road being this black market online for drugs and and other illegal goods, um, uh, Chuck Schumer held a press conference a couple days after um, Adrian Chen broke it in, in Gawker, and he said we must... You know, uh, um, shut down Silk Road. I call upon the FBI to do so. And and Bitcoin's only purpose is to launder money and to facilitate this. So we should basically shut it down as well. So it's like an immediate reaction. But since then, you've seen um, legislators and policymakers come to the understanding that oh, number one, there are tons of potentially beneficial uses uh, here that would benefit consumers in the economy. But also, perhaps their understanding. If we try to simply shut it down, it is only going to uh, drive it into the underground. So it becomes a purely underground currency uh, that probably breeds more contempt. So how can we work within this new state of affairs? And so recently at Senate hearings, Chuck Schumer said, oh, you know, I I was taken out of context. I never said we should ban uh, Bitcoin, but we should look at how to work, blah, 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 blah. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see how, how this is developing. Well, let's elaborate on this a little bit more. Yeah. So when you're saying that, you know, look, even if you do have these anxieties about what Bitcoin might mean, mm-hmm. how it might undermine state authority, the idea of Bitcoin exists in the world. Right. And so the idea of ledger-based money of this kind, the idea of a decentralized peer-to-peer currency mm-hmm. uh, or post-currency or whatever you want to sure. call it of this kind, exists in the world. Yeah. And once that genie is out of the bottle, uh, you know, it could reemerge very easily, no matter what you try to do to destroy the network. You could try to find, um, you know, kind of computers that are mining bitcoins yeah. or what have you, and impound them and destroy them. But well, I mean, that's certainly not going to stop the underlying phenomenon from reemerging because so, because it's so valuable. Bitcoin is very resilient, and um, it's, it's it's very resilient to attack. That said, um, the NSA probably has the capacity, the sheer computing capacity to carry out any number of attacks that could essentially destroy the, the Bitcoin network. Okay, but if they did that, it would just spring up as Bitcoin 2.0 or Raihan coin or something else within a matter of minutes. And that, that idea of um, uh, we no longer need intermediaries in order to transact online, as you say, that genie is out of the bottle. There's no So in a back. sense, uh, if I'm a policymaker, the, the, the attack that I might want to take is uh, you know, take a fairly laissez-faire attitude or, you know, so as to encourage the emergence uh, of intermediaries mm-hmm. that want stability, uh, that want to operate 
above in an above board mm-hmm. fashion in a legitimate fashion, uh, so that those intermediaries then become vulnerable. That's absolutely right, and you can see that that's what's happening today. So. Um, Consumers are not going to want to download the Bitcoin software, and they're not going to want to um, uh, meet with somebody on the street to exchange dollars for Bitcoins and then keep it on their laptop. And you know, It's very complicated. They're going to want a turnkey solution, a consumer solution. So they're going to want uh, exchanges that are trustworthy, that are regulated. They're going to want online wallet services that are as easy as PayPal. And so these are, are cropping up, and these are the ones that consumers are flocking to. And these today are regulated. Um, uh, the Bank Secrecy Act applies to them, so they need to, uh, when they have a new customer, they have to identify that customer, make sure they know exactly who that person is, and they have to keep a record of all transactions. And indeed, Bitcoin really facilitates that because um, technically, the way Bitcoin operates, all transactions are kept in a public ledger that's open and available for everybody uh, to see. So yes, yeah, so these new intermediaries are being created, and regulators are regulating them, um, but you always have the option to indeed download the software to your laptop and transact directly on the network with somebody else. The publicness of the ledger seems to be an aspect of Bitcoin that even many Bitcoin enthusiasts don't fully understand. Um, Some time ago, I recall having had a conversation with a friend uh, who was very enthusiastic about the Silk Road, Mm -hmm. the service that you had (laughs) mentioned, uh, and had used it to uh, purchase um, various controlled substances, <laughs> and uh, you know, he was talking about uh, its anon- uh, anon- uh, anonymity. Anonymity, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and the thing that struck me is that, well, wait a second. You know, cash is actually far more anonymous because given that you have a ledger, right. uh, and if you can figure out who is engaging in which transaction, which seems not insurmountable, not an insurmountable technical problem, uh, then you actually have a very good sense uh, of who is engaging in which transactions. That's right. I mean, cash is... People have this idea that Bitcoin is completely anonymous, and it is not. It is pseudonymous. It's a better way to think about it. Cash is completely anonymous, right? Because if you and I, um, you know, uh, you put an ad up on Craigslist, I answer it, we meet on a street corner somewhere, I give you cash, you give me whatever, we go our separate ways, that's an anonymous transaction because there's, you know, I don't know your name, you don't know my name. There's no record of that transaction ever taking place, um, of the amount of the time, totally anonymous. On the other hand, you have credit card transactions, other electronic payments, where you know, your name is known to the credit card company, my name is known to the credit card company, and the credit card company keeps a record of the date and time and amount of the transaction, sometimes even the purpose of the transaction, totally identified. Bitcoin is somewhere in the middle where there is a record kept of the time and amount of the transaction. It's necessary because, you know, to be a distributed ledger, but our names are not attached to those. Um, but as you say, you have new intermediaries that are attaching names to, um, uh, to uh, uh, Bitcoin uh, addresses. Yeah, if I'm a third-party service, given that I'm you know, operating under the Bank Secrecy Act, etc., I mean, I need to have that information. But also... I might just be able to use uh, you know, data mining yeah. uh, technology, the same things that undermine data anonymization in other there contexts. Has to, there has to be some hook that, um, uh, uh, that associates some name with a transaction, and then you can work your way back uh, from there. So it, it is possible to remain anonymous on uh, using Bitcoin, but it is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And yeah, it, it not probably to, takes a lot of sophistication and tradecraft that's right. to be able to do that. That's right. Mm-hmm. It's something that you'd probably have to... Um, meet somebody anonymously on the street to exchange paper cash 
for bitcoins, and then you have to keep your wallet separate so that you never use that wallet for anything else that could tie it you seems to. like a potentially promising business for you to go into, Jerry. Uh, there are actually um, extensions to Bitcoin and new currencies being developed that try to improve on the privacy of uh, the cryptocurrency. So it probably doesn't need me. There, there are cryptographers out there right now who are working on, on solving that. The, I wonder... Uh, to what extent is the fact that it's uh, you know that that one is using pseudonyms rather than you know kind of achieving perfect anonymity? Mm-hmm. Um, to what extent is that a, a feature rather than a bug? Because it does seem as though it, uh, are there any virtues to that? I mean, kind of you know for something where you can ultimately trace the identities as opposed to an alternative in which you would have a much harder time doing so. Well, I mean, the virtue is the network. The virtue is that only because you're using pseudonyms that uh, can you verify that you're not spending money twice. Right, because you know that this particular pseudonym, this particular, basically it's a long string of characters, it's an address, has this money and isn't spending it twice, and that you, know, you can do. So it's the consistency that makes that attractive. It makes it counterfeit proof. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Whereas some, a system that were truly anonymous, uh, you know, perhaps it's possible to eliminate the danger of counterfeiting, but it would be more difficult. No, I, I think it would be easy to counterfeit a completely anonymous. So it's something else we were, we were talking about um, uh, whether regulators are concerned about um, uh, Bitcoin. Um, they're actually more concerned about centralized digital currencies, right? So, like I said, Bitcoin is a decentralized digital currency. All of the transactions are perfectly public. You also have centralized digital currencies that are used um, in the black market and are used by criminals. So Liberty Reserve is a good example of one of these. Uh, Liberty Reserve was shut down uh, a few months ago. Um, and there you basically had a PayPal that was a criminal enterprise and made it so that they would hide the transactions. Um, uh, so uh, they would not answer subpoena. They would not know you're a customer. And so as a result, you can imagine that they could manipulate uh, and inflate the prices of, of, of different things easily. Interesting. So if I'm a law enforcement official, I might prefer Bitcoin to a centralized digital currency that is just because it's so much more opaque. The Secret Service said as much uh, at the recent uh, Senate hearings where they said, number one, they're way more concerned about centralized digital currencies. If you're trying to move large amounts of cash, you're going to be using a centralized digital service. And they also said, boy, if they want to use something where there's a record kept of everything, like Bitcoin, that's music to our ears. Now, again, we have to remember Bitcoin, um, while it's not anonymous, it's still censorship resistant, right? So the regulator might be able to find you and punish you, but they can't prevent the transaction from happening. That's that's a key thing to keep in mind. Let's uh, go on a little bit of a tangent and talk about the Silk Road, which you had mentioned mm-hmm. earlier on. Now, uh, one of the things uh, I found most interesting is that uh, you know this Bitcoin mini boom we're going through right now happened after the collapse of the Silk Road. Uh, and when the collapse of the Silk Road happened, many people believed, well, gosh, you yeah. know, uh, given that the Silk Road had uh, become so identified uh, with Bitcoin in the public imagination, you know, surely this means that uh, you know, this flash in the pan will go away. Uh, and there were a lot of people who really believed that the Silk Road uh, was just a much more robust system than it turned out to be in practice. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. Can you, can you describe it? Yeah, I mean, so the thing about Silk Road... Um, is the so Silk Road was right. a website that one could only access via a particular kind of browser, the Tor browser. You couldn't just get it on Firefox or Chrome right. or whatever else. Uh, and the Tor browser was built precisely because uh, you know it, it, it's so kind of uh, robust against right. uh, censorship and surveillance. So Tor is an anonymizing network. 
Um, and Tor allows you to provide what's called a hidden service, which is essentially a website, but one where um, the authorities or anybody else looking can't tell what your IP address is. And as a result of it, can't tell what your, where your IP address is. They can't know physically where you are to go and shut you down and seize so you. So in a sense, it's an analog to Bitcoin in being decentralized. It's, so it's very interesting. It is really the intersection. The, the, so we've had Tor for a while, but when Bitcoin came in the scene, um, it was that combination of being able to remain anonymous in space and a way to transact with other people who are anonymous in space one-to-one without the need of a third party that really made things like Silk Road uh, possible for the first time. And so Silk Road uh, set up shop, and it was essentially an eBay-type service uh, for illicit goods, including drugs, fake IDs, that sort of thing. Um, and it only accepted payment It only accepted in payment in Bitcoin. Um, I think one has to, to be fair, has to say that Bitcoin... Um, was bootstrapped in part by the black market, right? Because um, uh, without something like the Silk Road, um, there would just be computer geeks and gold bugs and other enthusiasts in it. uh, So the Silk Road greatly uh, greatly increased the number of people who were aware of Bitcoin's existence? It it basically um, uh, was, was, was a proof of concept. I think eventually Bitcoin would have um, uh, you know, had some sort of proof, other proof of concept. But you can imagine that because of its pseudonymity and because of Tor's anonymity, you know, it was only a matter of time if somebody had the light bulb idea. In fact, the light bulb idea to use DigiCash and anonymizing networks was probably had by the cypherpunks in the you know, mid to late 90s. They were just waiting for the thing, the technology, to come around. And then it did. Um, what Silk Road showed is you can have a completely anonymous market and more importantly, what it showed is that you could have um, sort of dispute mediation and um, uh, in a completely unpoliced environment, right? So uh, notwithstanding the fact that, that the alleged um, uh, sort of operator of Silk Road uh, ordered to have some uh, men killed, um, notwithstanding that, uh, apparently people who, you know, you should ask your friends, um, were very satisfied. It certainly... Um, you know, less dangerous than trying to go somewhere physically to buy drugs. Um, and people, you know, had different ratings. So the good sellers were rewarded with more sales. The bad sellers were, uh, were, were put away. There were um, uh, dispute uh, uh, mediation. So it seemed to work. Well, there was also a, a certain bravado among people who are users of the site because they were so confident yeah. uh, in its security. And that's the thing that I found really shocking when uh, it, it ultimately fell apart. Because, uh, I mean, I think that when we hear talk of Bitcoin, the talk is more convincing right. uh, when we talk of its resilience to me. Uh, but I think that certainly yeah. the idea of the Silk Road as a very resilient and, kind of, and robust system seemed pretty plausible to me at the time, too. <laughs> so I think... Um, so. You know, I was saying for a while before the Silk Road was taken down that you'd have to be pretty dumb to think that this was going to last forever, and you know, it was only a matter of time. What made it vulnerable? Well, and this is what's interesting. There's nothing about Bitcoin that made it vulnerable, and there doesn't seem to be anything about Tor that made it vulnerable. What made it vulnerable was that their humans were involved, and uh, these humans made mistakes, mistakes that gave away their uh, identity. Um, in particular, it seems that the alleged operator made some just key mistakes that allowed uh, the authorities to uh, identify him. So 
I think that's, it's, as we said before, you can remain anonymous using Bitcoin. It just takes a lot of work and one little slip up and you're, you're done. Uh, it's the same thing with, with, with Silk Road. It's kind of like contact points between you know, this world of anonymity and the world outside of it. You're presumably going to want to take your ill-gotten gains right. and spend them somehow. You're presumably going to want at some point to kind of translate that into some other kind of cash. And all of these little, uh, po- all of these transactions introduce new frictions, introduce new opportunities for someone to slip up to make a mistake and then for someone to discover That's it. right. And in the case of Silgroid, it wasn't even that complicated. It was just uh, he let his email address know in a, in a forum by mistake. It was that sort of thing. Um, but what's interesting is that Silk Road is resilient even though Silk Road was taken down because in a matter of days there was another site called Silk Road 2.0 by somebody else, a copycat, sprung up. And there are other um, black markets like that. So I think the fact that we will have online black markets that are hidden services uh, that will be accepting some kind of cryptocurrency, whether it's Bitcoin or perhaps some future more anonymous type currency, that's, as you say, out of, out of the bottle. That genie is out of the bottle, that ship has sailed. Let's talk about the future of Bitcoin. So when we think about the virtues of the U.S. dollar right now, uh, you know, one is that uh, it, it is very widely accepted, certainly within the United States, the only way you can pay taxes, as you said earlier on. Uh, yet as we transition, or, you know, presuming we actually do transition to electronic money, right. uh, you know, perhaps the, the gap between Bitcoin and the dollar uh, is not quite as insurmountable as it had been before, including the kind of psychological gap right. uh, you know, uh, towards using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. Um, Does that seem plausible to you? Or? I, I have a hard time seeing Bitcoin as a replacement for the U.S. dollar. Um, uh, well, just, partly because it can't be, because certainly it seems unlikely the U.S. government is going to accept, accept it. taxes, right? But also just sort of the, net, the built-in network effects and the rest. But what I think is more interesting about the future of Bitcoin is people don't realize um, that Bitcoin is more than money. Um, currency transactions, which is exchange of value, is only one of the things that Bitcoin does, and it's, it's sort of the most basic thing it does, and so it's the thing that's being exploited first. Uh, but Bitcoin does lots of things. So, for example, you could have uh, a decentralized uh, predictions market on Bitcoin. And basically, you can do this by having a transaction that is not just two parties, but is three parties. And you could have um, you, me, in a server, an automated server, that um, reports whether the price of Google went up or down. And you and I can make a, a, a transaction that this party decides who is the winner. Right? So we're making bets now. It could be sports scores. It could be anything. Um, you could have automated um, inheritances. So if I'm using E-Trade, you know, I'm always yeah. going to have to uh, you know, pay some kind of transaction fee you know, for using their system, right. whereas one can imagine some kind of third-party provider operating on the Bitcoin network that either charges a much smaller fee or perhaps no fee at all. That's absolutely right, because all they're doing is publishing data. Uh, think about Kickstarter. right? So Kickstarter essentially is facilitating assurance con- contracts. Um, we all pledge... Uh, little amount, um, and if the uh, person who is, has a Kickstarter, Kickstarter campaign meets their goal, then only then do they get the money from all the small pledges. And for that service, Kickstarter takes 5%. Um, you can do this on Bitcoin. Um, you can structure transactions in a way where they cannot be spent, they cannot be collected until a certain goal is met. And again, the, the cost there, the fee would be like under 1%. Um, so there are lots of unexplored uh, uses of Bitcoin still. And again, these are all decentralized. So again, think of the censorship resistance. Um, 
Indiegogo is uh, a website that's a lot like Kickstarter. It allows people to um, sort of kickstart uh, different projects. And Cody Wilson, uh, who is famous for uh, um, developing 3D printed plastic handguns, started a campaign to build and you know, design, build, and, and put out online for free a the schematics for a 3D printed uh, handgun. And Indiegogo shut down that campaign. He was not allowed to um, have that fundraiser there. Okay, enter Bitcoin. You can have that kind of assurance contract that nobody can stop. There's no place you can go to to put a stop to that. There's a deep skepticism among a wide swath of Americans regarding the virtues of our major financial institutions, mm -hmm. uh, how well they function, how well they serve their consumers, but also about their larger systemic effects. Uh, do you believe that uh, Bitcoin creates the possibility for new kinds of financial innovation that would allow people uh, to operate outside of the context uh, of the big banks? Absolutely. I think, um, I think this is something that is really, really long-term. Um, but again, within the, Bitcoin, within the Bitcoin protocol, there are all sorts of facilities that would allow one to have um, uh, lending. Um, that would allow one to have smart property and to have collateral. Well, tell me uh, what you mean by smart property. So smart property is physical property um, that the ownership of which transfers with a Bitcoin transaction. So it could be the sort of thing where um, you have a car, I want to buy it from you, we make a Bitcoin transaction, and as a result of that Bitcoin transaction, it is in the ledger. That now is proof of ownership, and perhaps the key that turns on the car is tied to the uh, private key of the person who made that transaction. So now, now as I, once I send you the money and you accept it, now the key only works for me. Only my key works for the car, I should say. So this could also be a vehicle it. for fractional ownership, or yes. you, know, you could have the transaction happen you know, many more times than is practicable when you don't have that kind of a tool. So micropayments mm -hmm. is, is something else uh, um, that Bitcoin allows, the traditional payments networks don't allow. So if, you know, given the costs of traditional payment uh, systems that we've discussed, having a transaction for five cents or even for one-tenth of a cent, it's impossible. Bitcoin uh, allows for that. And using what's called um, micropayment channels in the Bitcoin protocol, you could have just hundreds of transactions per second. So what does this allow? Imagine um, walking around New York City uh, and your phone just goes from Wi-Fi hotspot to Wi-Fi hotspot, negotiating and paying the owner of that hotspot from, you know, from place to place. Um, today, the only way that this works is with a third-party provider. You have to sign up for an account ahead of time with AT&T or T-Mobile or somebody. And if you happen to be one of their hotspots, can you use it? Well, imagine a world where all the hotspots are available to you. And you can have these little microtransactions. You don't have to pay $20 a month to one central authority you know, every month. You can just pay fractions of a penny as you walk down the street to each hotspot. Bitcoin allows for that. The technology is there; it exists. It's a matter of implementing it, and of course, that's gonna that's gonna take some doing uh, because there are just huge network effects there. So, I mean, you're envisioning some kind of third party that's able to operate at extremely low cost, and one could just sign up with this third party that's operating on the the Bitcoin network. There's no signing up. Mm -hmm. There's no signing up. You could just um, have the transactions happen. 
that you don't have to uh, set up an account ahead of time. So you find the idea uh, of Bitcoin somehow displacing the U.S. dollar very unlikely. Yeah. Yet earlier on, you mentioned that you know, of course, the U.S. dollar is not the only currency in the world, mm-hmm. nor is the euro. You have many other currencies uh, that have had problematic histories, mm-hmm. to say the very least. Uh, when you know a country like Argentina, mm-hmm. or you know, in a more egregious case, a country like Zimbabwe, these mm-hmm. are places where there's very little faith uh, in the currency right. for all kinds of reasons. Uh, can you imagine a scenario in which Bitcoin? starts to displace uh, currencies in other parts of the world? Sure. Um, you, you see this in Argentina, where there's a very strong uh, Bitcoin community in Argentina. A lot of folks are very interested in it. And uh, Argentina has, what, like 40 60% inflation. Uh, and so people are putting their money in Bitcoin. Even as risky as that might seem to you uh, and me, they are uh, investing into Bitcoin. So they're actually choosing to use it as a store of value. As a store of value. Uh, relative to their, their own currency. Uh, the Chinese government recently took action against Bitcoin. Tell us a bit about that. I'm not sure. So it's interesting. I think that was seen as, it's funny, it's, it's kind of like the Silk Road um, takedown where once Silk Road was taken down, Bitcoin dropped in value by about 20%. And then within a matter of hours, it was back over over that period. The same thing with the Chinese announcement: Bitcoin dropped in value, and now it's back up. The Chinese um, uh, authorities, I, I think, have not done anything too differently from what the U.S. authorities have done, which is in China, the central bank prohibited um, banks in the country from uh, holding or exchanging, facilitating exchanges of, of Bitcoin. And while the U.S. has not done anything similarly. Uh, Effectively, U.S. banks don't touch Bitcoin, right? Just they're, they're too afraid of it, and the smoke signals that they've gotten from regulators, I think. Um, and beyond that, what the Chinese government has done is required the same kind of know your customer type of registration, same thing we have here in the U.S. But aside from that, um, uh, the Chinese government was very clear that it is still legal for Chinese uh, people to own and use uh, Bitcoin. So nothing much has changed there. Well, I the think, big deal, I guess the big killer app of yeah. Bitcoin in the Chinese context is that the Chinese government imposes capital, capital controls, controls that yes. make it difficult for me to take the wealth I've accumulated in China, take it out of the country. Makes perfect sense the Chinese would want to do that because they, you right. know, they, they would be very concerned about capital flight. And Bitcoin, it seems, has been used by at least some people yes. or certainly has been um, you know, theoretically advanced as a means for people to take the wealth they've accumulated in China and spirit it away elsewhere. I think that's right. I think um, it, it's very difficult to know exactly what's happening uh, in China, but it seems that they've put enough of a control so they can know who's using it, um, but still allowing others to use it if they want to allow it, right? So you can imagine that there's still going to be folks in China uh, that the government, um, a lot of folks in the government itself, who want to engage in a little bit of evading capital controls. You have suggested that, in a sense, Bitcoin is best understood as a technology akin to the World Wide Web. Mm-hmm. That's obviously a very big, ambitious claim. Tell us a bit about what you mean. So... Uh, Bitcoin is a platform for innovation, right? For all the reasons that we've been talking about, all the different things that it could be uh, put, you know, how it can be put to use, the fact that it's, that it's uh, decentralized. It's a platform for innovation. We don't know how somebody's going to come around and, and use it. If you think about the World Wide Web, when it was first invented, when Tim Berners-Lee uh, put it out uh, for the first time, it was a way for scientists to show documents to each other, just sort of static documents, right? It was meant to be a new way to publish journal articles, right? To be quicker, more, more efficient. Um, and think about the web that we have today, 
where reading a static document is probably one of the few things we do. We do things like go to Facebook, which is, you know, that's a network that's user generated, that is interactive. Um, and Bitcoin, I think, is the same way. Bitcoin is programmable money for all the reasons that I explained. Um, there are many parts of the protocol. There's a scripting language uh, uh, that is built in. Um, we can't imagine the kinds of things that innovators are going to come up with. There are with. already things that have yeah. nothing to do with the exchange of money as such. Yeah. I mean, there are things that are just you know, kind of using it as a way to engage in all kinds of other transactions. You have, for example, uh, proof of existence, right? Let's say that you um, write a, um, a, a script, a Hollywood script, and you want to make sure that nobody steals it from you, or if they do, that you, know, you can prove that they did. Or you say you, you write a will, and you want to make sure you, you notarize that. Well, you can basically hash the, the text, which is a way of saying you cryptographically convert it into, into a series of gibberish that can only come from that text, right? So you can prove that it exists. And then you attach it to a Bitcoin transaction, which is then registered in the global blockchain at a moment in time. And so now you have a decentralized notary service that nobody can control. You can always prove that this text existed at this particular moment in time. And that can be used for any number of things. Again, you could prove I wrote this script at this time. You can prove I wrote my will and this is what it looked like at this time. Um, who knows what else it could be used for? There are alternatives to Bitcoin as well, uh, some of which uh, have a really formidable market capitalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think of any of these as uh, you know, promising alternatives? So um, again, you have to remember uh, you have centralized digital currencies, which you've had for a long time, and then you have decentralized digital currencies. Bitcoin being the first one, right? And Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin, was one who solved the problem that allowed decentralized currencies to exist. Bitcoin is an open source uh, project, and so the code base is available to anybody. All of the, if I'm not mistaken, it's all of the um, alternative coins, altcoins they're called, like Litecoin, Feathercoin, etc., are basically taking the Bitcoin code and improving it in some way. So they are all working off of the Bitcoin code base. Um, I think that it's good because uh, any, any advances that we make in, that, in the altcoins can be folded back into Bitcoin. But ultimately, I think Bitcoin has a network effects. It's got the first mover advantage, so I think it's going to take a lot for any of these to overtake Bitcoin. So most likely it'll be the dominant one. I think so. Jerry, thanks very much for joining me. I really My appreciate pleasure. it. Thank you.